Hello, thank you guys for joining us today. This is the first episode of the Perfected Health Podcast, and I am super excited to be here with Ivor Cummins. He is an author, metabolic health expert, specializing in cardiovascular health. Hey, Frank. Great to be here. All right. So, guys, the topics we're going to cover today are general mechanisms of essentially what causes heart disease and try to understand why this isn't really being accepted. And we'll also touch on other modern health issues. So if you could say, you know, the most important few things for people to understand, uh, like if you said, okay, you got 10 minutes, what do I need to know about maybe even just health in general? And then we can jump a little bit specifically into the cardiovascular aspect of it. Yeah, okay, so where do you, from the top, so basically, there's a few really, really important things in avoiding chronic disease, whether that be heart disease or Alzheimer's or even certain cancers, uh, certainly diabetes. Um, all of these modern chronic diseases that came up in the past century, and they're kind of e epidemic. So a couple of the big things are you should avoid high insulin levels in your blood, your pancreas releasing too much insulin because your glucose is too high. You should avoid uh, high glucose in your blood and glucose spikes after a meal or indeed insulin spikes after a meal. And those things are all related to hyperinsulin uh, or insulin resistance. And insulin resistance is really a state you get into when you've been pushing your insulin too high for many years, pushing your glucose too high, and eventually your body begins a war with itself. And during that war, when you're in that state, you are exposed to huge increases in risk because it damages so many components in your body when you're in that state. And that's the connection through to heart disease and Alzheimer's and cancers and many, many other modern diseases. So at its simplest, the biggest thing I'd avoid is insulin resistance, hyperinsulin, hyperglycemia or high blood glucose, and particularly spikes in those after you eat. And the lucky thing for people is if they get a glucose monitor or a continuous glucose monitor like a CGM, you can actually monitor when you eat how your blood glucose behaves an hour or two afterwards. And it's a real, we call it eating to your meter. So anyone who's starting out on a journey to fix the biggest issues, well, if you have a meter like this, you can start tracking everything you eat and how it affects your blood glucose. And it gives you instant feedback. And then you start eating things that keep your glucose lower after a meal and generally lower. And you can also occasionally measure your insulin and see that that's coming down, your fasting insulin measurement. And that, that's tackling one of the big, big problems in modern chronic disease. So how would you do that? Well, for me, from the science and my research and my worldwide colleague of experts, uh, or network of experts, I should say, it would be to go to a lower carb, healthy fats diet. I mean, that would be the primary thing to do. Now, some people say, you know, these ancient civilizations, some of them had high carb and they didn't all get our diseases. And there's truth in that. If you are born in an indigenous tribe and you always eat some tubers, roots and leaves and then fish and some meat and you have high natural food carb in your diet all your life, in a healthy environment with social networks, 
exposure to the sun and the air and no pollution and you have everything else going right for you, you may never develop the diseases. But the key point for me and my colleagues is right now, 65 plus percent of Americans over 45 years old are essentially diabetic. So we've broken our machines over decades with vegetable oils, refined carbs and sugars so that now when most of your population has this metabolic issue and it's the biggest disease process in the world and they're afflicted to start fixing themselves, the best diet is to go to a low carb, high healthy fat diet and start fixing that metabolic damage to the machinery and bring down your glucose, bring down your insulin, bring down many other factors like your liver enzymes and start getting your body back to a position of being relatively healthy. So that's kind of the big thing. If we were going to say, well, what's the big problem today in today's world in terms of inputs or factors that drive the issues like hypertension, high insulin, high blood glucose, all of the bad things, I would say, well, refined carbohydrates and sugars, simple sugars, and vegetable oils certainly are a major problem, industrial seed oils that we were told to eat for heart health. So they're probably the three biggest dietary offenders. When you take them all together over time, they tend to push you towards insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. So they're the big dietary fixes. If you eliminated refined carbs, sugars, and seed oils, and the processed foods that contain them, and just did that, and ate real food, there'd be a huge shift in human health across the globe. Mm -hmm. Just that. And that's without even getting into special tools like keto and more extreme elimination diets like carnivore. You know, for most people, they just need low-carb real food and they'll start getting a hell of a lot better. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's you any think underlying issues here outside of the consumption of pretty much high-calorie, low-quality high carbohydrate intake, like oxidized fat intake. Is there any underlying, like, obviously we have exercise, we have lack of sun exposure, but this dietary thing, if we just fix this, there's really, then this is, if we don't tackle this issue, what's the point of even thinking about other stuff, essentially? Yeah, and Frank, that's the way I think of it increasingly, is we've got a world full of hundreds of millions of people where in America recently, only 12% satisfied the metabolic health measures like HDL and waist diameter and triglycerides, the important ones, more important than LDL. So when 88% of your population is in a mess, yeah, you, you go for the big factors, the big Pareto items, if you want to fix population health. Now, if you want to get the ultimate health for yourself, you do everything, right? You do all of what we said. You also access healthy sun exposure without burning. You also get magnesium, potassium, vitamin K2, and all these important components for the human machine. You also get strength exercise and, you know, a little aerobic exercise as well and make that part of your life. And you get, you know, fresh air, avoid pollution, uh, you know, and you try and get your sleep right because, Poor sleep affects cortisol and many hormones and gives you problems similar to insulin resistance. So there's a whole range of things you can do for ultimate health. 
But I think I work on behalf of the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Association as Chief Programme Officer, and that was set up by an Irish entrepreneur, David Bobbitt. And interestingly, seven years ago, he was super fit, super healthy, passed all his treadmills and the top clinics, but he had three blocked arteries and huge type 2 diabetes, and he was never diagnosed. And this is happening to people all over the world who drop dead of a heart attack and they're not fat and they're well exercised. They don't smoke. But the real killer is there's a scan called a calcium scan, a CT scan of the heart that in five minutes in a CT scanner, it actually gives you the answer. Do you have huge disease or not? Do you need to do something big or not? Now, he got this scan. And he found out he had massive disease and no doctors knew it. So that's another big problem in the modern world is they're not using tools like the CT scanner. And therefore, millions of people have to go to their graves thinking that they were non-smokers and they were not fat and they were healthy. But you can't trust the blood metrics fully. You can look at I'm your I'm sorry, blood. Not, to, not to go too far. That CT scan, I mean, that's obviously something we would do in an older population. Uh, and would there be like an, a danger of exposure to that type of radiation in a young person? There's no point in doing this until you're like 50, 60 years of age. Right. Well, the general guidelines are 40 or over for men and 50 or over for women. And that's simply because if you're younger, you're less likely to get a warning result to tell you to take action because fewer younger people have enough of a problem, calcium in their arteries. Now, that said, there are studies out that looked at younger people, and the calcium scan works amazingly in the same way. Mm -hmm. People with a zero score who are younger in their 30s versus having a high score, like my boss David, the, the high-scoring people might have 15 to 20 times greater risk of a heart attack in the following 10 years. But you're right, Frank, because relatively few younger people will have a problem, it's maybe not worth screening lots of them. We just take a risk. So do you have any experiences? We know that a mechanism of vitamin D3 is to mobilize calcium in the body. And we know that vitamin K2 has MGP, uh, matrix glot protein, and that, bi that binds to calcium ions in the blood and that takes them out of the bloodstream. Do you think that there's possibly an underlying D3 and K2 deficiency in the population in general that could be causing, that that, that, that could essentially be the sole cause of calcification? Yeah, I don't think the sole cause. I, I think there are many causes. So calcification essentially largely is atherosclerosis it is heart disease mm -hmm. and heart disease and atherosclerosis the inflammatory disease of your blood vessels have many many causes and of course the worst case is when synergistically a few causes come together and really light you on fire but the biggest cause is diabetic physiology or kidney failure um, and things like that is the biggest driver of atherosclerosis the vitamin D is interesting, and first thing I'd say is vitamin D and K2 and even calcium, magnesium, many of these important things for health, they work together. So balance is very important between them all. Just racking up your vitamin D may not help much, right? And the thing about vitamin D as well that people should know is there's a little question mark if you're lowish on vitamin D, simply taking pills. And I'll explain the reason. Vitamin D correlates 
hugely with bad outcomes for heart disease and many other things like cancers. In other words, people with cancers and heart attacks have much lower vitamin D. So it's tempting to think, well, let's put vitamin D into people and then the problems will go away. But it's not so simple. There's two reasons it's not so simple. One is that people who have higher vitamin D are often healthier people getting good sun exposure, and that may be the reason for their lower disease. And also we know that people who have disease and inflammation and problems and insulin resistance, it tends to drive their vitamin D level down. So what we call reverse causality, it's not the low vitamin D that caused their their atherosclerosis, it's the bad problems they have that drove down the D also drove the atherosclerosis. So it's a very tricky one. I always tell people for high vitamin D, remove all your inflammation, remove all your issues, and you'll find your D status will rise. And the other thing is try and get it from healthy sun exposure and a UV lamp because getting it the real way also makes lots of photo products, nitric oxide, and many other beneficial chemicals in your skin to help with heart disease and all disease. So getting it from sun and UV is a way safer, better way than popping pills. So I'm a little concerned about thinking that magic D pills will somehow fix and reverse things. I'm not so sure on that anymore. Mm -hmm. Now, if you could break down atherosclerosis into several categories, and I'm assuming these might be along the lines of high blood pressure, uh, as you said, metabolic syndrome. Would there be like several specific categories that it can be broken down to and then we can deviate further into those categories? Well, the causes you could break down in a kind of a list and then see which are the big ones. Mm -hmm. So um, diabetic physiology would be one of the biggest of all, especially in the last 40 years. So being in a state of type 2 diabetes, and most people in this state will not be diagnosed. Only the people where the wheels have fallen off the wagon and their blood glucose has gone out of control will get the full diagnosis. But we've got masses who are essentially diabetic like 60, 70% of US adults over 45. So our whole population is stuffed with diabetes and that you could say is one of the biggest drivers. So that's the first thing to go in and fix above all. Mm -hmm. But then we have people with hypertension or high blood pressure, as you say, and that can have other causes. And the theory is that the pulsating high blood pressure causes stress to the endothelium, the inner lining of the arteries, and opens them up to develop these plaque, these atheroma. So you want to deal with high blood pressure, again, by exercise and diet and getting magnesium in your diet and potassium and kind of doing all the good stuff will also deal with high blood pressure. Uh, kidney failure or kidney issues are strongly linked to calcification of your arteries. So any bad kidney measures that are out of whack you want to seek to find out what that problem is and deal with it. And it could be dietary related or it could be an autoimmune condition. Uh, the other thing is our inflammatory conditions like lupus and arthritis and even psoriasis. So they are autoimmune and you have, well, it's not always the person's fault, but your body is in a state where your immune system is being activated to attack things and it ends up attacking your own body that looks like the bad things. 
So these conditions have massive risk multipliers for heart disease because autoimmune conditions where your immune system is attacking yourself, it damages your vessels, it damages your organs. For type 1 diabetes, it can attack your pancreas and you lose the ability to, to make insulin. So I think there's a huge cluster of inflammatory diseases that raise your risk really high. And you need to find out those. You may not even know you have them, but you need to find out you have them, why you're getting them, and do an elimination diet to improve all your metrics of, of autoimmune. Mm -hmm. And then you'll achieve safety or relative safety. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm, I'm kind of rolling on now, but there are so many causes of heart disease that you kind of, in our book, Eat Rich, Live Long, we lay them all out, but you've kind of got to address every potential cause. You know, someone who's overweight drinking Coca-Cola for 20 years, you know, they're on 80 pounds overweight, they're smoking. If they get a high calcium score, it's no surprise, right? Because they've been doing some of the big bad things. Mm -hmm. So they just have to fix those things first. Mm -hmm. But if a slim, healthy person gets a score that tells them they have a 20 times risk over a zero scoring person, like my boss, David, he was at 20 times the risk that I am at a similar age because I have a zero. The calcium scan will tell you at middle age what your real risk is, and then you need to go and find out why. And in his case, it was mainly type 2 diabetes undiagnosed because he was on a very sugary vegetable oil diet. So although he was exercising hugely, he was super slim, super fit, that doesn't stop the diabetes in your body if you're eating the wrong stuff. Mm -hmm. And he didn't know. He was eating the food pyramid and he was avoiding fat and he thought he was doing great. But the calcium scan saved him. And then he changed to a low-carb diet, got all the treatments he needed. And now for the last six years, his calcium score from 1,000 has not gone up at all over six years. And that means he's succeeded. And if your score stops going up, you reach the safety of a low-scoring person. So it's important to know about that scan. The radiation level is trivial. Mm -hmm. I see. So this brought up quite a few questions. So two things as a side note I had were stroke rates in vegans from high homocysteine and the conversion of plant fats into your lipids. So when we see people go on these high polyunsaturated fat diets, we essentially see their cholesterol levels go down and then over the course of a few years you know the lipids in their body are essentially turning into linoleic acid and as i learned from your discussion on your youtube channel a week ago this form of linoleic acid if it's in the ldl when it enters the arterial wall you know your body essentially attacks it it gets in the white blood cells then those form into foam cells in your artery it's heavily heavily oxidated because of the linoleic acid content is that in combination with the reactive oxygen species from potentially high homocysteine levels in a diet deficient in B12? Is that why, I mean, I've seen studies of Adventists that have, you know, their heart disease rates are the same, but their stroke rates are triple other people. Are, are those two combinations that could be issues? Yeah, the homocysteine one is, there's been a lot of argument, is homocysteine a marker for a problem in your body, like lack of the B vitamins? Or is it actively causal when it's high, partaking and driving the disease? And I don't think the jury's fully out, but we could assume that there's a mixture of both, that it is a sign of a, of a nutrition problem that will cause you issues because all nutrition problems or lack of nutrition 
tend to put your machine into a state where more disease happens. And then the high homocysteine also, there are many mechanisms where it actively helps drive atherosclerosis. So I'd say if you're if you have that challenge with homocysteine and it is a very good blood marker to watch, then you certainly, if you're dealing with a challenge with that, you don't want any other problem. And just like you said, another problem would be excessive polyunsaturates, omega-6 type linoleic acid, who Tucker is the expert in. And yeah, and the problem with those is these omega-6, we over evolution got around a half to 1% of them in our diet, which was fine. They're signaling molecules. They're not really to be used as fuel because of their delicacy. So 1% was fine. We now have 10 to 12% in our diet because of all the vegetable oils and the guidelines. That's a huge increase. So soy oil has gone up in the diet over 100 years by a factor of 1,000 from the, the late 18th century. All the other vegetable oils too. And when they go in the body, well, when they go in the pan and they get heated, they get cholesterol oxides and they're bad news. But Tucker's suggestion, and I would agree, is even in the body, with the environment in our body is aggressive in many ways, they get oxidized there and they make your LDL particles prone to oxidation because the linoleic PUFAs are in the shell. And when the LDL gets mildly oxidized, even in the blood, even before it goes into your arterial wall, it actually gets taken into the arterial wall because it's not recognized by the LDL receptors. So it gets brought into the wall to be dealt with through LOX1 receptors, and we have papers on this. And it looks like the body might be clearing oxidized LDL from the blood, using the arterial system as a massive net, bringing in the bad LDL through the endothelium, through the inner layer of the wall. And in the wall then, it can get turned into foam cells. But if you're healthy, your HDL will remove that out and bring it back to the liver. So it's almost like a clearance system. Now, when will you have a problem with that description? Well, if you're putting too much oxidized LDL in your blood, there's too much going in through your arterial wall, and at the same time, your HDL is not very healthy. So you're missing out on the removal step. Put those together, and by all means, add in high homocysteine and other issues, and now you're heading to perfect storm. So I'd agree, all these things are synergistic. You may carry one big problem. Like you may carry just insulin's a bit high. That promotes atherosclerosis. But let's say your insulin's a bit high, but everything else in your body is really good. You might carry that indefinitely. Mm -hmm. The problem is when a few things come together and insulin resistance and hyperinsulin and hyperglycemia, they create a storm of sorts in themselves many things go wrong. That, and that's why a quarter of Americans die from heart disease. Almost everyone is on a carb, high carbohydrate diet. Almost everyone is consuming way too much omega-6. But m- my thing was, hey, if you guys want to have a stroke, drink some soybean oil and stop eating meat. That seems like a pretty good way to do it. Uh, yeah. I think, yeah, the, the meat thing has just been exaggerated beyond all belief, you know, with associational studies. I. Someone made a quote, it is absolutely absurd that we're blaming modern diseases on an ancient food. So I think 
correlation isn't always causation, but if you suddenly have massive modern disease in the last 100 years, any engineer would look at what has changed in a big way. And you don't have to look 12 inches away from you. Vegetable oils enormously, while meats and natural foods have been coming down, and sugars, starches, refined carbs. So like, that's your first point of call. And I find interesting, Frank, you see loads of newspaper articles and media about meat might cause cancer and one egg a week is enough. All these natural foods, I don't see constant media articles about, hey, processed food is killing us. Look, this box of crap is going to kill you. I don't see them so much. You guys like my wallet? Let's break out the cash. That's what it's all oh. about. I got the, I got the, I got the paperclip as a wallet. It's all about the money, unfortunately. Uh, well, industry, our world is a modern capitalist society, and and businesses, big businesses, will always work to favor themselves. And I think in the seventies and eighties, when the scientists began to blame fat and natural foods and eggs, I think industry just looked up and thought, "Wow, they actually want us to sell cheap oils." And cheap carbs what's not to like mm. so they jumped on it and they funded and funded and supported that's all that happened and and just to be clear uh if they do if people do want to know more about vegetable oils his name was tucker goodrich correct tucker, tucker. goodrich if you go to the fat emperor podcast he's back a couple of episodes um and you'll see him there on seed oils yeah sinning with seed oils i think was the title mm -hmm. now since diabetic physiology is the most significant factor in heart disease. I mean, the, the main issue behind that is excess fatty acids in the bloodstream and then oxidative stress, essentially, right? Essentially, yeah. The diabetic person has the worst of every world. So when insulin is high, glucose should be low and free fatty acids should be low. But what a diabetic ends up with is a broken control system where insulin is high glucagon is too high, glucose is too high, and fatty acids are too high because they're spilling out of the fat cells because the insulin can no longer keep them back because of insulin resistance. So they, they have another perfect storm. And that's why they have four to six times the rate of heart disease and most die from heart attacks. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a general idea of you know what to avoid, how to avoid. It's, it's pretty simple stuff. Now, Obviously, people have different genetic tolerances to this. You could have someone drink a cup of soybean oil and smoke 20 cigarettes a day and live till they're 90, and, and someone else is not as fortunate. Yeah, and if you take, if again, if I take David, who set up the Irish Heart Disease Awareness Association, he had a discovery that led him to become passionate, and he's put $4 million into this charity, and that's why I'm in this business now, to get the message out. But he had a genetic type which is called APOE4 and I'm APOE4 it's around 17% of the population and you can find out from 23andMe you can get a genetic test for $100 uh, my wife is APOE4 and we have much higher risk for heart disease and much higher risk for Alzheimer's so we're a, an example and that's one of the reasons that he got so much disease and diabetes is we are very sensitive to modern foods like carbs, sugars, and veg oils. So genetics can be a part, but on the other hand, the APOE4 people who are at higher risk, when they went in and studied, they found that the ones that had no insulin resistance syndrome and 
ate the right foods and never got insulin resistance, they had a lower rate of heart disease than the other guys, the other types of genetics. And when they got insulin resistance, the ABOE4s, they had a much higher rate than the other. So even with these challenging genetics, if you do the right thing and eat according to your genetics, you don't have to get the disease at all. But if you eat the modern food, you'll go on fire way faster than some other genetic type people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely something to be said when indigenous people go off of their modern diet. It seems like um, one theory I have is, you know, we have parts of the world like Italians are known for living a long time, even in the context of high carbohydrate diets. My theory is that these places where people were consuming carbohydrates for thousands and thousands of years, essentially the people that couldn't handle carbohydrates died already. That's why when we see indigenous groups go on modern diets, all of them get incredibly poor results. There's When you put the Aborigines or the Native Americans, uh, when you put any of these indigenous people on a modern diet, they fall apart. The reason that I can assume Italians aren't falling apart is because we already killed everyone with wheat ten thousand years ago. At least that—that's the way I look at it. It's—it's it's interesting, you know. My—I gr- mean, my grandma is um, eighty-nine, and she's frying chicken cutlets in soybean oil. So, you know, there's something to be said about genetic tolerance. Uh, for- there is. It's hard to quantify it, but certainly there's strongly the evidence which suggests if you're thousands of years in a community or a group that have been eating grains, there will have been selection working. Uh, So there will be more tolerance. And also the traditional Italians, I believe the pasta was quite a small bowl, not so much. And also it was made as another uh, brilliant researcher, Gabor Dosi, I interviewed. He said the traditional pasta with a lot of egg, that protein greatly reduced the insulin and glucose spike when you ate it. But a modern uh, store pasta, right, with veg oils and maybe not so much egg protein could be far more like eating bread. So there's even all those distinctions. But, yeah, I agree with your point. The, the, the indigenous people get crucified when they – the Pima Indians, I think 50% were diabetic. It's within insane. It. Yeah. It's, it, they just – yeah, they are destroyed. So ApoE4 I mentioned – is probably a mild version of being like one of those indigenous tribes. We're sensitive. Yeah. Yeah, I'm generally curious where because food quality is such a it's such a complicated discussion. You 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 have literally ten different types of wheat. You have the first form of wheat, einkorn wheat, that has 14 chromosomes. You have forms of wheat like Khorasan wheat that have 28 chromosomes. Modern hard reds like we're consuming one form of wheat. The wheat that we consume now is hard red winter wheat. They hull it, they grind it into flour. So there's something to be said about indigenous preparations and how we should be eating our foods now. And at the end of the day, it all ties back to what you said at the beginning, which was stop eating these modern refined foods, these seed oils that develop diabetic physiology. Uh, I think one of the biggest things to get over is preconceived notions. And in my mind, a lot of preconceived notions we have are, you know, we're afraid of the sun, uh, we're afraid of meat, uh, we're afraid to, uh, I mean, water is is back and forth a little bit, uh, but there's definitely something to be said about water fluoridation and excess chlorination of water. And the other thing is exercise. People have misconceived notions about exercise. They need to go running, they need to do this instead of building up their lean body mass. So what are the the most important things and what's the best way to really get people to approach 
these changes, you know, I mean, they've grown up 30, 40. Some of these people will never change because they've grown up their whole lives in this culture that's been telling them the opposite of what you're providing for them. Yeah, it's a challenge, Frank. And all we can do is use the freedom of information on the Internet to give more and more lectures, podcasts, talking and explaining about this stuff at a high level that's the only thing that's going to work because changing the guidelines committees they're entrenched it's nearly impossible they have a massive professional pride and at stake to not change and say they were wrong so that's a killer now there are people trying to do that but there's no point in me jumping in there so i think it's sharing the information that we have and i know we're not going to go into too much detail here but the talks i give and many of my colleagues around the world that go into a little more detail on the science. You know, the people who want to, for instance, the people who hear about the calcium scan of the heart and they go and get one and they find out, wow, I'm a 400, I'm 52 and I have the arteries of an 85 year old and I was eating the food pyramid and now I find out someone lied to me. Those people, the people who want to, should be able to go and search and look and hopefully as we put more and more material out, they'll find the detailed material that explains all of this or the books. I mean, I, I think that's the best method. It has to be grassroots, reach the people. And then the people who find out about low carb fasting, keto, calcium scanning, you know, the right things, K2, magnesium, the true story on insulin resistance and meat, those people will tell their brothers, sisters, friends, and right now, those brothers, sisters, friends might say, ah, I think that's a fad diet. But if more and more people are saying it, I think we'll reach a tipping point where the others will realize this is coming up all over the place. And hey, John's lost 20 pounds in the last six weeks and he, he's bouncing out of the room. He feels great and he, he's not lying. I can tell he feels great. And Mary as well. And, and the inflammation in her ankles where she was going to have to maybe get an operation and medications, the doctor says she doesn't need them now. And, and, and all of these anecdotes, N equals ones, spring up all over. And after a while, there's a tipping point. Everyone realizes, okay, hold on a minute. Something's really wrong here. Anyway, that's, that's my thought. I, I feel like this is a time right now where we're either going to – the the world is going to turn – into a fiery bowl of flame or we're going to look back at this time and say what the you know how yeah. could we let this happen uh it, it's so unfortunate uh if you could say i mean obviously blood markers in the traditional sense you know we could look at total cholesterol to hdl ratio we could look at ldl we could look at triglycerides individually. We could look at blood glucose, C-reactive protein, HCRP. We have apolipoprotein. Can you kind of break down each of those aspects to some degree and just explain what their relevance is? Uh, oh, Okie doke. So, so if we take first the blood glucose, the fasting blood glucose doesn't mean a huge amount unless it's very high because you could have an okay fasting blood glucose, but your insulin could be huge, like my boss David with huge diabetes. Fasting glucose, not so good. If it's really high, you know you've got a problem, but you're gonna miss people who are 20 years with the problem before their blood glucose goes up. So that's not great. If you get a fasting insulin, that's pretty damn good. It's not perfect, but if you have a high fasting insulin, seven or eight or nine units, that pretty much tells you there's a problem. And there's a thing people can do, it's called a HOMA index, H-O-M-A. You can Google a calculator for that. 
and you just put in a simple fasting insulin from your doc and a fasting glucose and it uses both together and it makes it more powerful and if you're over around 1.2 you're probably insulin resistant and over 1.8 you know you're gonna have to start doing things so that's insulin and glucose HbA1c is a longer term blood glucose measure so it should be around 5.3 or 4 max not over 5.6 certainly not over 6 and that measures the amount of damage that your blood glucose has done to your red blood cells over around three months so it's a steadier measure but it failed my boss david his a1c was 5.2 and he was a huge diabetic no one knew so it can let you down and then you mentioned other ones the cholesterol the most powerful things from your cholesterol panel are you've got ldl hdl the bad and good you've got total cholesterol and you've got triglyceride so the best measures are hdl divided by triglyceride in american units you should be below around 1.2 and total cholesterol divided by hdl you should be around below 4.5 mm-hmm. so those ratios are useful the ldl is very hard to tell anything from it's just the way it is and that's why the ldl is not in any of the world's risk calculator algorithms they use the ratios i mentioned now if you get into the advanced lipoproteins the advanced cholesterol measures the best measure there is your um apoa1 over apob so apoa1 is the hdl advanced measure and apob is a kind of an ldl advanced measure and dividing those two together you get a ratio and it should be below 0.6 or 0.5 so that so even in the advanced measures the ratio is best but if you have a high apob particle count or a high small dense ldl particle count sdldl they indicate you could be very insulin resistant. So they're ones to watch. I'm sorry, just to clarify for very simplistic terms, the APOA1 is, which one of those are measuring the HDL and the low density in the APOA1 and the APOAB test? Okay, so the APOB is the LDL particles that's counting, mm-hmm. and you divide that by the APOA1, which is the HDL particle count. Mm-hmm. It's not exact, but APOB over APOA1. And naturally, if your ApoB is not too big and your ApoA1 is nice and big, the number will be smaller by dividing that in. And you should be down around 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, not up at 0. 0.9 or anything like that. So, that, so that's, that's the ratio from the advanced. And in the advanced cholesterol panel as well, they give you a lipo-IR value. And that should be low down in the 20s. And what they're doing there is they're using the cholesterol measurements and the ratios to infer if you're insulin resistant. And that's a really good measure. But you'll notice that a lot of the cholesterol measures and ratios and lipo-IR, all the uses of the cholesterol values that are really useful, they all actually estimate your insulin resistance. So it's kind of funny. Mostly what they do is not about cholesterol. It's about estimating insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. So, on the topic of HDL and LDL, obviously HDL function can be greatly impaired, and LDL particle size is significant. Uh, could you explain why 
you know, why the HDL can be impaired as well as why the particle size of the LDL is pretty much the most important thing to look at? Yeah, well, the HDL can be impaired. If you are driving insulin resistance in your body, HDL has to swap uh, cholesterol in and out of the LDL particles. And when you are pushing the system in the wrong way and creating small dense LDL and higher particle numbers, HDL can get overwhelmed with having to traffic cholesterol molecules in and out of them. So what you're doing by what you're putting in, in your mouth is you're taking an evolutionary system that should be balanced with everything doing its job and you're forcing it to work too hard and your HDL will get less functional by being under pressure and your cholesterol particles will get smaller, denser and more prone to oxidizing and damaging. And like we say, having to end up in the wall. So it's like everything begins to go wrong. Think of it like a finely balanced system with all these little trucks going to other trucks and taking stuff on and off them. But if you start suddenly pouring mud into the system, the trucks are going to get screwed up. And that's kind of what happens. The small particles are not really more dangerous because they're a little smaller and they can get into your wall easier. That's not really the case. It's just that small particles happen in a system that has a problem like insulin resistance. So the small particles correlate. Now, there is an argument the small particles also become oval and misshapen, and they are less readily picked up by the proper receptors. So they end up floating in the blood for longer. They get more oxidized, more misshapen, and then they end up getting taken into your arterial wall. So there's a lot of moving parts, but the best way to think of it is all your particles will begin to lose their function and become part of the problem based on what you put in your mouth and the other things we talked about. Mm -hmm. It's not really their fault. It's whatever is driving them to be a problem. Even inflammatory conditions can do it, but it's not really the particle's fault. Yeah. Could someone have a crazy, crazy high LDL, but just have a really large particle size? Yeah, I mean, particle size is just another risk indicator. Uh, it correlates strongly and it mechanistically links. But it would appear you can have a high particle count. But if your vascular system is in great health, your endothelium, your glycocalyx, which is on the inside of the wall that manages cholesterol particles, and if your HDL is very healthy and it can remove cholesterol from where it gets in and your blood pressure is low, so you're not damaging your arteries and many other things. If you have everything working right, then the particles being higher is not going to give the risk that high particles in an insulin resist, resistance overweight diabetic guy will give. It's arguable that having double the number of particles won't really make much difference. Now, there's not proof for that, but that is the way the system when researched would appear to work. And we do have people with very high particle counts with calcium scores of zero, seven years apart, zero, zero in middle age, no problem whatsoever. We know it's true that you can have a very high particle count. We also know there's indigenous populations like the Katavans and the Semain. And we got their data and they have slightly higher particle counts than American adults, but they have no heart disease and the American adults are riddled. So we know that the particle counts 
don't have to matter in certain circumstances. Mm-hmm. But if you have a high particle count, you'd better make sure it's not because of insulin resistance and that all your other health in your arterial system is good and that it is okay. You can't ignore a high particle count. You got to do the work. I mean, everyone's got to do the work. It's your own responsibility. Mm. So that, that brings up two questions. Is it really that some people can have larger LDL particles or is it just that larger LDL particles might be normal and small LDL particles are a modern thing and do we actually have data on this size variance? Do we know, like, are these particles twice the size? Are they three times the size? Do we know that type of stuff? Well, we do, yeah. The large size is around 22 or 23 nanometer diameter up. So I'm going to put there, say, 20. And the smalls are like 20 or 20.5. Oh, so it's, okay. So it's, <laughs> there... it's, so why are we, it's like, yeah, I could see that. That actually makes things seem fairly insignificant. Uh, it's in size they're insignificant but it if you are it having a system that's driving smaller it can be a very good sign that you're doing a bad thing and therefore the smalls will correlate with bad outcomes also the smalls can be come misshapen and overly shrunk and not fit the receptor so well and also the shell on the outside could become more prone to oxidation or oxidation could cause them to be smaller. So you can see the arrow of cause is moving everywhere here. So the only thing you can say is it's not as simple as the slightly smaller particle sneaks through the endothelium easier. But outside of that, there's a lot of other things about the smaller particle that say you could have a problem causing it. You could have a receptor pickup issue. There's a lot of bad vibe around small particles. So one really big thing, people go on a keto diet, people go on a carnivore diet, people start eating more meat and their blood levels go like, oh my God, my cholesterol's up. I'm going to die. Oh my God. I got to get a statin. Like what can, <laughs> it's unfortunate. Like what can we do? You know, it's, 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 oh, that's a tricky one, Frank. And um, so I would say to be thorough, you have to protect people at all costs. If your particle count shoots up when changing any diet, and that's an example you gave, often on keto or carnivore, some people will shoot up. You've got to make sure that that higher particle count for you does not indicate a risk and a problem. Now, that's tricky because you got to know all of what we said earlier, your glycocalyx, your HDL, da-da-da-da-da. Now, if your HDL is particularly high with the new diet and your triglycerides are particularly low, I mean, Dave Keto at cholesterolcode.com has got hundreds of people like we're talking about, and they're tracking their metrics, getting calcium scores, getting carotid intima scans, and they're trying to tease out that question. What means a higher particle count on a new diet is okay? And, And what do you have to measure to say maybe it's not okay? That's a work in progress, and it's too early to advise anyone. However, um, I personally have a very high particle count. I'm personally okay with it because I believe my glycocalyx and everything from my research is okay. But And so is my co-author, Dr. Jeffrey Gerber. Uh, and I have a very high LP little a, which is another very big risk factor, uh, lipoprotein A. So I'm okay, but I can't tell people. What we tell people in our book is if you're uncomfortable with deciding your risk, 
with a high particle count, you can move to a soft or lower carb diet. You know, you can eat more fish and avocado and maybe a little more healthy vegetable carb. And you'll probably be able to get your counts to move right back down. And in the absence of knowing for sure for an individual and their health, well, we just give there's there's a safe way. Or if you had a heart attack or had a very high calcium score, like my boss, David, he plays it safe. And rightly so. He eats much more fish and olive oil and avocado, much more bland foods and would rather keep the counts down because he wants belt and braces. He wants to keep every factor at its best. And he takes low dose medications too, because he's thinking it's my life. I'm not going to go and do a human experiment on myself, given that I have a huge disease. You know, that's not smart. Let the guys work on it for 10 or 20 years. And when they found out everything, then I'll know. So it's, it's just to be balanced. And I think a lot of the doctors in this system as well, this gives them a problem. Do they make a judgment? Well, you're, you've got a high particle count, but with your ratios and your blood pressure, da, 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 I'm deciding that's fine. Well, if they have a problem later, that doctor, that doctor broke his standard of care because nothing in his training told him he, he was allowed to do what I just said. So you can see it's tricky. This is a tricky business. Yeah. Yeah, Dave Feldman at cholesterolcode.com has done so many tests on seeing how things like exercise and fasting and fat intake affects levels of cholesterol. One crazy thing to me was one week I had my my LDL and trigs tested. My LDL was like 380, completely bonkers high, and my trigs were 100. The next week my LDL was 220 and my trigs were 140. So for me, just the variance in one week with the crazy diet that I followed was insane. That first blood test where my LDL was 380, I fasted for two weeks and my ah. LDL measured 380. And then the next week I had a high fat meal the night before. And my L so just to me, I mean, in the context of most people, uh, it seems as if these are very good markers, but I, I mean, when you're doing crazy high fat diets and experimenting, things really do get all over the place and it gets, uh, it, it's definitely confusing, at least for me. Uh, it, it gets insane. And I think in fairness today, if they're trying to work out all the whys around that and they, and Dr. Nadir Ali, a cardiologist in Houston, he set up low carb Houston last year. He is doing some great theoretical work on why this is happening, what you described. And it's, it's not just Dave's theory of the VLDL transporting more fat when you're, when you're eating a lot of fat. Therefore, the LDL resulting will be higher. He has other theories which have merit and they're, they're complementary. But I, I think it's all a work in progress. So for the moment, Frank, it is, it is an unclear area. Um, and well, anyone with disease or risk should, should be careful until the jury is back in. Uh, people who are young and very healthy, of course, like Dave, yourself, can experiment and try and answer the questions because you're probably in a, in a position of, of, of very high safety. Uh, Dave has a zero calcium score. You know, he's only in his 40s. So he's starting from a point that he can play with this. Uh, whereas then if you take someone who has had a heart attack or a high calcium score or, or like David, my boss, you know, they're not they're not going to be wanting to mess around. They're going to want to be keeping every factor known at its lowest because they're at the most risk. So it's this kind of, you know, the, the young 
healthy buckos will be able to go off and, and do the work to find the answers while the older disease people can sit safe as, as much as they can. Is that similar to any thoughts you may ha- might have on a ketogenic or a carnivore diet? Does that tie in as well, like the younger people have more chance to change or is that completely different? I'd say it's largely the same. It's just the nature of things that when you're younger and you do look at all your biomarkers and you're particularly healthy, um, or if you're in your 40s especially and you get a zero score in a scan, so you know that you've got extremely low disease, you're doing fantastic, and your mortality risk in the next 20 years is way lower than a high-scoring person, you can say to yourself, okay, I got a machine that's running really, really well. And I've scanned it and found out there's no bad things happening. Okay, I can play a bit, right? So it applies. Of course you can play a bit and keep an eye on the metrics. Uh, and, th- and then the other side applies as well. You know, if, if you have a big score, a lot of disease, very high risk, you need to batten down the hatches. And if a risk factor moves, like gopher, gophers, you got to whack it down just to, just to keep safe, make sure you're safe, because you don't want a heart attack uh, for sure. So, yeah, I guess the work will be done by the pioneers, especially ones who know they have a very good level of health now and therefore can play more, you know, take more risk, try more things. Yeah. So if so, I mean, I've had many people send me their blood work and, you know, they've gone, they've increased their animal food intake and their, you know, as you said, their D3 shoots up, their testosterone shoots up, they feel better. But this is something where we have to look at, okay, how much animal foods are we consuming? And where can that benefit be achieved without inhibit without having issues related to calcium score and blood markers? Yeah, and that that would be if your calcium score is rising on that carnivorous type diet, and you're not happy with the cholesterol ratios, etc. The best cholesterol measures. Again, you can go to maybe a mostly carnivore diet, but then get in more safe, you know, bland vegetables, olive oil, eggs are good and fish so you can go for a a kind of softer diet and get your metrics looking better and and it might be a route for people who want to play it safe and cheese is another one for apoe4 people Uh, there is certain evidence that apoe4 people like my genetic type i have a zero score and no real disease so I can eat cheese and animal fat and protein, and I'm not too worried. Like I, I'm like the guy we talked about earlier. I'm a guy who says, okay, I can play with this. Whereas then David, my boss, you would say, okay, he's got a high calcium score, and he's APOE4. And when he eats cheese and a lot of animal products, for him personally, with a broken metabolism and a history, and E4, he tends to see his insulin and inflammatory markers rise, not just cholesterol. So it's not fully worked out, is cheese with casein and proteins in it, the, the inflammatory agent, or is it excessive protein from animal meats? But he just backs away from there and has more fish, avocado, all, all of all that stuff. And he just he would rather stay away from that place, mm-hmm. like not take risk. And that's perfectly appropriate. If I had a high score and much disease, I have five children. You know, I'm going to say it's fascinating what's going on with Dave's work. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to learn. But if my markers, inflammatory markers, begin to go up a little, I'm just going to back off. You know, I'm going to let someone else safer do the work. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned earlier that 
it, we have to tan in a, a safe way, so to speak. So uh, one thing that a lot of people have observed on various keto and carnivore communities is that when they reduce the inflammation in their diet, uh, they're able to tan much easier and they're no longer burning as badly and their skin's healing quicker. Uh, so there, to me, it seems like there's definitely some degree of safety of improving your diet and overall metabolic state before actually trying to achieve certain aspects of your lifestyle. Same with making drastic changes in the diet. Uh, one thing I also noticed was, I, I mean, I'm I'm Southern Italian. I can't really be talking to an Irish person about that. Yeah, I can't. I'm Southern Italian. I can't tell an Irish person go tan for eight hours a day. That's not. That doesn't make sense. Because if I go in the sun for eight hours, I'm gonna look like you know a bronze statue. And if they go in the sun for eight hours, they're going to be lying in a, a bathtub full of ice. So yeah. one thing I did notice was, you know, before when I was tanning, going to tanning beds occasionally, being out in the sun, when I didn't take my vitamin D3 supplement, you know, it would take me a couple days to get tan. I took a vitamin D3 supplement, a uh, high dose, and then I went tanning. And the day I tanned, I got so dark. So to me, it seemed like there was some melanin activator in the D3 taking a large amount in the skin that made me tan quicker. So uh, that ties into what I was going to say. You know, we used to be in the sun outside all the time. So in the beginning parts of the year when the sun isn't as intense, our skin slowly darkens a little bit. So then when that hot summer sun comes around, we're not damaging our skin. That's the I think that's a big thing a lot of people miss because – even if you're Irish, even if you're of Nordic descent, if you're following a healthy diet, your skin will change color a little bit. But if you're going to sit inside at a desk all year typing away, duh, 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 and then you're going to go outside in the middle of August and blast your face on the beach with like 10.1 UV index rays, that's why we have these issues. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, it's come up many times in the past. You should, as the sun strengthens in the seasons, just be out a lot. And you slowly will tan. Even the white-skinned people will slowly tan. And you'll build up. That's why evolution designed the tanning process. All the problem is in burning. Even in the epidemiological studies on cancer, burning incidents linked to melanoma, the worst cancer. But melanoma, the worst, most fatal cancer, uh, sun exposure doesn't really link to it. Just burning incidents. So that's one thing. The other thing is that vegetable oils were never there in evolution. And the best data for what will affect how you burn and how easily you burn is the presence or absence of PUFA linoleic acid vegetable oils. So someone on high vegetable oils, which is most people in the modern world, the evidence would say are going to burn a lot quicker and a lot worse with a lot more risk. And Kate Shanahan in her book, Deep Nutrition, went through all the mechanisms and she sent me many papers on the mechanisms. All the mechanistic science is there. It's not a mystery. When you have the PUFA incorporated in all your cells, you get oxidation and inflammation from the sun's UV in your skin. Big problem. So we're hearing more and more. And even Tucker, who has red hair, kind of Irish kind of skin, he went out once he eliminated vegetable oils, and he could not believe how much more his sun he could take. I remember him even saying that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we're hearing this all over the place. I even interviewed a cardiologist the other day who has gotten into all this metabolic science, and he commented himself, he's hearing it from patients who went keto, no veg oils, no processed food, lost weight, and they themselves observed and noticed, I don't burn as much as I used to at all. 
Like they're kind of, it's not someone's telling them in their ear, whispering. They're coming up with it completely themselves. It's so big an effect that they're actually noticing it. If it was a small effect, they'd never notice. But it's a big effect. And more and more people that's going to get reported. And I think the whole skin cancer world in coming years, more and more they're going to go back to, well, what in your diet makes the sun burn you most and causes most damage? Rather than just we blame the yellow ball in the sky. I think things are going to change. Is this why... I mean, the conventional wisdom around vegetables are good for you, consume these omega-6 oils and you'll be healthy, it's so contradictory. And I mean, this is almost an explanation as to you know why when you look at vegan vitamin D3 levels and vegetarian vitamin D3 levels, you know, not only do they have this high level of omega-6, so they're like, oh, I, when I go in the sun, I burn, so I don't go in the sun. And then in, that in combination with the inflammation in their body, the lack of cholesterol in the diet, it, this, it really explains why they have vitamin D3 levels and, you know, showing that take everything, you know, with a, what's a good, like a, a, what's the saying with the salt? Anyway, the um, pinch of salt, pinch of salt, take everything with a pinch of salt, because when you're too extreme in either direction, problems come up uh, for sure. So, you know, going against that conventional wisdom and trying to say, hey, the, you know, the reason you're burning in the sun and you're getting skin cancer is because you're eating butter and is, is because you're eating margarine instead of butter seems pretty crazy to most people. And that's why every time I go to my grandma's house, I throw out the, I can't believe it's not butter. Uh, oh. but, but it's something in our culture. It's, it's just, uh, it, it's so unfortunate. So this almost takes us to kind of statins. And I mean, to say that, you know, obviously I don't know what your opinion on this is, but you know, the statins do inhibit so many other metabolic processes before inhibiting cholesterol. And my grandmother was taking a statin. She was having memory issues. She was uh, really deteriorating. And I was saying, I was telling to my mother, you know, it's not my responsibility. She's my grandmother. It's my mother's responsibility. It's the, my uncle's, my aunt's responsibility. So I was like, listen, take her off the statin. And literally, we took her off the statin and just two days after, like that, back to almost normal. So th this idea of, you know, as you said with the, I mean, dermatologist, skin cancer, you know, trying to, you know, hammer the nail, you know, and, and try to fix the solution as opposed to taking it back a step and seeing what the underlying issue is, is um, it's just, it just always seems like there's so much to, information to go on. It's, it's overwhelming. Yeah, the, the statins is a tricky question. I kind of stay out of it. The statin wars, I call them. Um, you know, my boss from IHDA and my co-author, Dr. Jeffrey Gerber, we have the same general view. Statins can reduce events and stabilize plaque in people who had a previous heart attack who have big disease, in people who have a high calcium score who have big disease. It's almost like they had a heart attack, only they didn't. And in people whose blood markers are very risky, like the ratios are bad and you can't fix them, you know, that person should get a scan. But even without a scan, should consider I have genuinely bad blood risk markers, not just an LDL high. I mean, hypertension and bad ratios and risky business. And um, those people could benefit from a statin. And a recent study showed that when you looked at people who had a high calcification score uh, over 100 with serious disease, 
tracked over 12 years, the statin versus no statin, there was a big reduction in event rates, heart events, like 40%. Fine. But in the same study, the people who were below 100 in the calcium scan, who would have had small disease or none, those people, there were huge numbers on statin and not statin. And you know what? There was no difference. Statin did nothing for the people below 100 calcium who have not much disease. Mm -hmm. So I think of statin as something that can help when you have very big disease, and you've got to give it to the people only with very big disease, and it can help. And it could also cause them some challenges because it is a drug and all drugs have side effects. Our biggest problem is probably giving it to even bigger numbers of people who don't have much disease and who will not get a benefit over 12 years. That's crazy because all they'll get are the side effects. And women, older women particularly, there's very few trials that show statin helps. And I suspect that if you put her numbers into the world's risk calculators, you know, she might not come out at high risk. Sometimes they just see a high LDL and they give you a statin. But they show all doctors should be using AstraCharm or um, the latest risk calculators. And they take blood pressure. They take HDL total cholesterol ratio. And they take diabetes, family history of diabetes, hypertension meds. So they actually have lots of measurements. And they do a, an okay job of guessing. Uh, they don't have LDL in them, but if you use that risk calculator, I think there'll be a lot of people below 5% risk who currently are getting a statin anyway, and that's a waste. That's terrible. They don't stand to benefit, and Dr. Paul Mason did a recent analysis uh, that it really is maybe around 20% side effects or more, You know, mm -hmm. that, and it, they can be bad for some people. So we say if you've got big disease, high scan result, or a previous heart attack, Cover your ass, take the advantage of the med, give yourself CoQ10 and offset the negative parts of it in as much as you can. That's okay. But let's not give them to people who are truly low risk. Mm -hmm. Now, of, of course, with everything, I mean, exercise is incredibly important. And we, we know there are a lot of people that exercise and they still suffer from heart disease. So there's only so, so much it can do. There's only yeah. so much. Yeah, you know, I mean, I remember reading there's an article in the New York Times years and years and years ago that there's this like triathlete and he dropped out of a heart attack. And he said his diet was like it was wheat based. It was grains, vegetables, mm. fruits. So uh, it, it, it's really interesting when you when you go with this, the conventional wisdom, you know what we've been told. It's it becomes really evident that having some presence of, of these animal foods in our diet and having a more balanced way of eating is definitely important. Uh, would you say that uh, in, in regards to this whole, you know, how much of a role something like stress plays in, is, is it more of a catalyst in other lives? Like if you're stressed out, you're more prone to doing certain things? I think there's an element of catalyst. Yeah, stress, stress can raise your cortisol, impact your sleep, raise other hormones. It can make you prone to becoming insulin resistant or having blood sugar issues. It, it's a factor. I think if your life was perfect in much in all the things we talked about, but you just happen to have quite a bit of stress in work, I think it's something you wouldn't have to worry about. But if if you if you smoke a little and you have high blood sugar and you're stressed, you know, now you're talking adding things together and racking up your risk. So I think stress is something to be avoided. Good sleep is something to be very much sought after. 
and uh, and supplements are important for things like magnesium and, and potassium and things we don't get as much of in food anymore and k2 but those three s's sleep stress supplements try and fix those things in your life uh, and try and get decent exercise especially weight bearing exercise push-ups squats you know to failure till you can't do another rep and then a little bit of aerobics and try and get all those other factors kind of get them pretty good along with your mega diet and what you eat and you you start putting that all together and you know your risk will really start going down 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 mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so are you aware of any like devices or like medical technology that might help us in detecting things like soft plaque or LDL or, you know, more indicators for tracking this inflammation in the body? Yeah, well, you can get, um, you can get a CT scan looking for visceral fat or the fat within your organs or pericardial fat. There's MRIs for that to see the fat in your heart. And that's a good predictor of disease too. To be quite honest, the best of all 40 year old technology super quick $100, the CT scan and the CAC score, because that's the final decider. But you can get ultrasound of your carotid artery where they look for atherosclerosis in the bulb. And that's not the same as a CIMT. CIMT is pretty weak. But but a carotid ultrasound looking at the bulb and looking for plaque with a good operator can be a good thing to check more regularly as you change your diet to see, well, is it going the right direction? Um, angiograms and things where IVUS, intravenous ultrasound, where they go in to look at plaque, they carry risk, they carry more radiation. And to be honest, if you've got a low calcium score, you really don't need one of those. They're really for symptomatic people or high calcium scoring people to go the next step to look deep as to do they have a weak area that you can go in and try and fix. They're more advanced things really. Normal people, calcium score at middle age, middle risk, find out are you high risk or low, re-stratify yourself, take action. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the blood markers to help track your progress, the good ones as you go along until your next calcium score in a few years track your bloods to keep yourself on the on the right path and that's where a continuous glucose monitor or cgm or even a glucose meter an hour after you eat can give you a good idea that you're not eating the wrong stuff not perfect but it'll give you a good idea so there are these tools yeah to track track your progress i remember reading a study uh, where they scanned the arteries of babies and depending on the cholesterol of the mother, you know, these babies actually had atherosclerosis from, I believe the degree was 22 for the average and then 33 for the hypercholesterolemia. I mean, do you have any, uh, I mean, have you read this before? Do you know anything about babies? Just, uh, the, the, so the question is, is, is non-inflammatory, I mean, is atherosclerosis a normal physiological function to some degree if it's asymptomatic? I think yeah, mild atherosclerosis could be seen as normal because very mild atherosclerosis won't even go to the point of calcifying where your body brings in calcium to strengthen a threat area. So mild atherosclerosis may be part of life. And I believe in babies, those fatty streaks, they call them, they can come and go. 
come and go. So that'll give you an idea of normality. As you get older, though, or if you're young with a genetic condition or a really bad lifestyle, you'll hyperdrive that process. And that's where you get much bigger atheroma and they begin to calcify. And then you've got real disease. As your arteries get thicker, a baby's arteries are, the walls are very thin. But in an adult, in the big coronary arteries, the walls have to get thick and muscular to handle the pressure. And as the wall gets thicker, it's harder to get oxygen and nutrients into that thick wall. So you get vasovasorum, little tiny arteries feed the wall of the big boys. And actually, the heart disease where atherosclerosis gets really bad is always where you have thicker walls and these vasovasorum feed arteries. And there's a whole theory around that, that if you are pushing all the bad risk factors, those little arteries can get blocked inflamed and you can get necrosis and the wall can get very unhealthy and then really build up atheroma. So I'd say the babies is interesting, but probably more normal to see fatty streaks come and go. And it's when you really get into thicker walled vessels and genuine atheroma that attract calcium, microcalcification, that's when you're into disease process. And that will be later, 20s, 30s. So in, in babies, the atherosclerosis can come and go. Is that still occur in older people? Um, well, fatty streaks, I think, in older people, it's much more focused on actual atheroma. I think the thing about the babies, I've heard arguments about this, that the fatty streaks you see are not necessarily the early signs of a real atheroma. That the fatty streaks may be a slightly different but related phenomenon that comes and goes. And it's to do with the endothelial cell layer getting a little damaged. But it may just be like a small scab that comes and goes. The persistent growing atheroma is more an older person's problem. Now, in the Korean War, they autopsied American servicemen. They're only 19, 20, 21. And they had real atheroma. And they got a shock. They had focal atheroma here and there that were the real deal. So, yeah, by the time you're 20, or someone with major metabolic uh, genetic issue could get a heart attack at 13 and lots of atheroma. Maybe their endothelium is fundamentally flawed and they, you know, their arteries go to hell. But I think there's just something about separating the fatty streak phenomenon at very young years from real atheroma that happens later. And that real atheroma will have special drivers, whether a genetic condition a genetic inflammatory condition, tons of Coca-Cola and cigarettes up to your 20s, you know, and the, and the bad diet, that could give someone a heart attack in their 30s if you were really bad. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Do we think that these these plant sterols, these seed oils, is this a much, like, this is, is this a much bigger role? Because th these are always present in pretty much everyone's diet. Do we do we know that we can have these issues to, to, to some degree without the presence of high omega-6 ratios in the diet? That's a great question, Frank, because, yeah, can you isolate omega-6 and say that without or with very low omega-6 and no seed oils, you almost can't get the big problem? Tucker Goodrich in, in our podcast w would argue that that any, any modern population that has these disease processes in large amounts had vegetable fats and seed oils. And the one example I thought I got them 
was Weston Price in the 1920s went to Africa and he found the native tribes eating their natural diet. Their teeth were spaced. They were in excellent health, no cavities, no blood pressure, incredible health. And he looked at their genetic relations who went to the city and their teeth over a couple of generations began to be badly spaced. They got high blood pressure and they began to get all cavities and they began to get heart disease. And what he tied it to, I thought, was sugar and refined carbohydrate wheats. That was the only distinction. But Tucker, interestingly, got his book and he found something I didn't know was in it. Weston Price actually said refined carbohydrates, wheats, sugars, and vegetable fats. So even in that case where you'd think, hey, the vegetable fat's not in here, it was. So I think it's fair to say there's almost no example of a modern disease population where excessive seed oils and vegetable fats, man-made, are not present. And- yeah, that, that's really, that's really, it's definitely interesting. I mean, we know that we can, you know, I mean, the one thing that I like bringing up in this context is almost all the Native American Indians died from smallpox. So, you know, just because, just because they were in indigenous perfect health doesn't mean some, they and this is the way I like to put it. Modern issues call for modern intervention. There, there are a lot of things we can understand from these indigenous groups, uh, especially in regards to how we're living, our diet, our exercise patterns, our lifestyles, the sun, the circadian rhythms, all of that stuff. Mm. But, but they weren't immune to small, you know, they all died from a, a, essentially a disease. So it, it's pretty crazy to, to think that even humans in this perfect physical form, hypothetically, still succumb to something that uh, develops in a modern context. Yeah, yeah. And they just simply had no immunity to that or because it was brought in from outside. Yeah. So it just it killed them too fast before they could breed out of it. The resistant people. Yeah, I think there's a book, Guns, Germs and Steel, I think, a book or a documentary all about that, about how all these people were destroyed with germs, guns, and I think, well, it mightn't have been steel. might have been something relating to, to nutrition. But yeah, yeah, it's always the modern. You can't really look for a ancient cause for a modern disease epidemic. There, there might be a case where it could be true, but it's obviously almost certainly stupid from the start. If disease ramped up in the 20th century, you have to look at what racked up in the 20th century, and that's sugar-refined carbon seed oils. Now, you can add in LED lights, but no, the LED lights came long after the heart disease epidemic was underway. We know that smoking in the 20s and 30s, everyone started smoking, and we know that drove a massive hump of heart disease, and in the 70s and 80s, when they stopped smoking, a few years later, heart disease leveled off, and then cancers for lung cancer came down. We know all these things, but why look for ancient foods for modern disease epidemics? Duh. <laughs> That's it. it. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, there was actually uh, it was on a Joe Rogan podcast. The guest's name was God Sad. Gade Sad. I'm I'm probably mis I mispronounce everything. But the point is, this guy was talking about a story of these monkeys in the forest. Uh, and then they built this resort. And at this resort, they were throwing out a lot of cake and sugary goods. And the monkeys got a little dessert. So what ended up happening was these monkeys, within one generation, developed tuberculosis and went, in, and went extinct. So 
in Weston Price's book, a lot of the focus was tuberculosis. So another one of my theories is, you know, humans are technically supposed to die on modern diets. If you gave a woman, and, and we're seeing this, uh, I mean, I don't know how great of an anecdote this is. I'm sure, uh, you know, as, as someone who has like a grandmother, they, they used to have 15, 20, 30 children. Fertility was way different. And now women are having a difficult time having one child. Uh, people are, you know, I mean, you know, they talk about the eyesight of Native Americans. They talk about how good the eyesight of indigenous aborigines was. And, you know, a lot of these modern problems can possibly be correlated to that diet. But the concept that, uh, you know, we wouldn't actually be able to survive without modern medicine is an interesting one. You know, would we have been able to, would we all develop tuberculosis and die without the tuberculosis vaccine? I think that's something that's uh, de definitely, at least, that that's the Joe Rogan podcast with God say the story about the monkeys that went extinct in one generation. Uh, I mean, I'm, I wonder if we could... Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, the antibiotics, of course, were dramatically successful in many ways. And, and, and vaccines earlier on, I think they have vaccines for everything now. So it's hard to keep track of what's worked vaccinating and what's not. I mean, everyone knows the measles and the classics with polio, you know, fine. But nowadays, I think there's 20 or 30 and it's like, blah. But, uh, but yeah, how much in the 20th century of a lack of these diseases that killed people was also helped by nutrition being brought forward and, you know, nutritional value getting better. I know we brought in sugars and seed oils, but but on the other hand, they brought in fortifying of foods all over the place for for micronutrient deficiencies. So, yeah, I'm not sure on this one. We did get rid of the the scarlet fever and we got rid of tuberculosis and we got rid of a ton of stuff we got rid of all the the infant death so i have a graph of mortality from 2012 and you know people are in half the people get up to 80 and then the curve for 1925 you've suddenly got a nearly 10 percent drop in the first year of life of losses and then it follows the curve and and nearly reaches the other one so, I mean, we got rid of infant mortality. That, that was a massive thing since the 20s. I'm not sure what they're all dying of, but I think if they got scarlet fever, they got whooping cough, they got mumps, I mean, all these diseases they get, they just got cold. You know, 10% got cold, even in the 1900s. So in fairness, the medications were probably the big thing that, that dealt with a lot of those things, I guess. <laughs> I'm wondering uh, now. You know, what's interesting is, I, was, I mean, I've looked at... Uh... Uh, I've, I've, I was looking at charts. Pregnancy mortality has actually gone up since uh, 1980. Uh, some really, at least in the United States. Uh, it might be relating to obesity and complications, and you know that preeclampsia, the ultra high blood pressure associated with pregnancy, and they're like we we brought in a lot of new problems with obesity, diabetes, fatty liver. Um, We've brought in a lot of new problems in the latter half of the 20th century. I, I think the lifespan was always increasing until a year or two ago. They're beginning to tail down their lifespan expectancy. So we got rid of smoking. We got loads of meds to help. We got loads of medical procedures and care. We did a load of good stuff. And now we're letting the population, though, counteract that with all the, the things we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's. Did you have any thoughts on uh, water fasting or just uh, any, um, any sort of caloric, caloric restriction? 
Yeah, I I do one meal a day or two meals a day. A few days a week, I do one meal a day at least. And I find it great. Uh, the biochemistry and the metabolism of it all checks out and it makes me feel great. And it's my way I can enjoy a nice big meal with a glass of wine because I like eating. And if I was eating two or three times a day, I, I'd like to eat a meal. It's much better to really enjoy the evening meal with the five kids and my wife and have a really good meat and veg evening meal uh, and also when I'm on stage like in Denver last week I was on stage with 840 in the audience twice I had a debate to run and also I gave my talk and I like to be 24 hours fasted before those things because I feel much better I Clarity. feel sharper mm -hmm. edgier you know I'm hollowed out I feel alive I like the feeling of fasting now over 24 hours, 27, 28, then I begin to get hungry and my instinct is I don't need to fast anymore. So I haven't done the multiple day fast. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Jason Fung, a good friend of mine with yeah, his great guide resource, to fasting, yeah. I read that and everything in that I'd say he's a super guy, it checks out. But, but I have never yet needed to or felt the need to go to the multiple day. I might do it someday and try it out. Yeah. And I believe with women, I believe women more than men can have more challenges on multi-day fasts and maybe they have a slightly different makeup. Mm -hmm. It does seem to be easier for men doing all the crazy fasting mm -hmm. stuff. I'm not sure though. Well, there's definitely something to be said about the woman's nutritional requirement. A woman's job is to be fertile and have a child. And if, if the woman's environment isn't fertile with caloric and micronutrient nutrition, then she's not going to be fertile. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just finished a seven-day water fest myself. The longest I've gone is uh, 14 days. Uh, without salt though so I'm sure I could go I mean I'm already a thin guy so I don't really think I would want to go longer than that uh, no. so uh, no. a lot of people have been trying to link uh, at least a lot of people in you know kind of like the maybe the, the media to get people afraid they try to link fat to insulin resistance yes they do and it's very clever and I saw that coming out years ago and I knew it because there's a growing realization that insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia are a major problem, and we were wrong to focus on cholesterol because most cholesterol problems are caused by insulin resistance. So they're beginning to realize this is the root, and they see all the low carbers going on and on about insulin resistance. They also are clever to find out that when you are low carb, you develop a physiological good insulin resistance it's not insulin resistance because you have too high insulin and your body's trying to stop the sugar smashing it it's insulin resistance to not take glucose into the muscles preference burn fat burn ketones and keep the muscle in the blood for the red blood cells and for the brain don't waste it so it's a good insulin resistance but they've cleverly taken these different ideas and they've mashed them into Ooh, insulin resistance is bad and fat drives up insulin resistance. And it's clever and it's political. I presume most of them know what they're doing. But then there are other experiments, Frank, and I have them, where they've given people, unfortunately, the last thing you ever want to do, what you want to do with a diabetic or pre-diabetic person is you want to slowly take away their carb and after several weeks of high healthy fats, they'll have adapted and they'll be fat burners. And then they can eat fat. But because they're damaged, they should never overdo it. But it's safe, healthy fat. Now, what if I take a bunch of pre-diabetics and I want to prove my point and say fat's bad? 
Well, I'll tell you how you do it. And they've done it. They've taken these pre-diabetics who should not take sudden amounts of fat because they already have too much fat in their blood. And they gave them a 900 calorie emulsion, which is basically liquid fat. What do they call them? Liposaccharide emulsion, right? And yeah, it's, yeah, well, yeah, a yeah. lipopolysaccharide Lipopoly, for the yeah. bacterial. Yeah, but they like uh, basically 900 calories. Now, in an oral glucose tolerance te- test, you only take 300 calories of glucose sugar, and that's considered to be a shock to the system. People don't want to do an OGTT. It's only 300 calories of glucose. This is 900 calories of liquid fat in an emulsion. And the protocol and instruction was to drink it as quickly as possible. So these people who are pre-diabetic rammed liquid fat into their bodies in one go. What's going to happen? They're going to get feedback from toll receptor 4. They're going to get a massive explosion in their body. The pan- and sure, the pancreas they're is going to explode. Yeah, they're going to go crazy. So they recorded all the craziness and they say, hey, hey, look, fat. Fat causes this, which is a... Just clearly deceitful. The, the, gets... <laughs> you know, what's funny to me is the, I don't know how familiar you are with the heterocyclic amine and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbon for causing cancer from cooking meat. And they literally, mm-hmm. they take this substance and they inject it into rats at, at like thousands of times a normal dosage. And then the rat dies. And I'm like, yeah. And then it's the same thing with the lipid hypothesis. The lipid hypothesis was a bunch of Russian scientists injecting fat into rabbits. It's, it makes, it's like, it's like it's like I hit my hand with a hammer and my hand broke. So no one should use a hammer to build a house. It's it's a really silly and crazy argument to make. Yeah, I mean, in an animal experiment, if if you think a gram a day of something is bad, by all means, give two or three grams to help see a signal. But then you should go back if you do see a signal and do one gram and make sure that yeah, there's a smaller signal. But putting in huge amounts. You know, it's fine if you bring out a new chemical to to clean carpets and put a lot of it in a rat just to make damn sure that it's not bad in the human. Why not? Shouldn't we shouldn't we actually put it in a bottle and put it on our salad just like the vegetable oils? Yeah. It'd probably be about as good for you. It could clean your internal carpet. (laughs) But but the, the thing is, yeah, so with real natural foods. Why would you ram an emulsion of natural fat into someone? It's wrong because that's not a carpet cleaning chemical you're trying to see. Has it got any issues? It's a real food. But then you whir it up, you process it into liquid, and you dunk it into a pre-diabetic. This is happening all the time. All the high-fat experiments that say high-fat causes cancer, high-fat causes obesity. 99.9% of those rat experiments, high-fat is half sugar, half fat Mm -hmm. with vegetable oil. All of those obesogenic diets have a big whack of vegetable oil and a huge fat whack of sugar. And then they've got lard. Mm-hmm. So it's a big cheat in my mind. But listen, it'll go on for years more. Cheating is part of winning for many people. Yeah, go figure. Yeah, uh, yeah I yeah. remember reading a study uh, that linoleic acid was required to reduce non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in rats. Uh that's a good study, yeah. They, they shoved the rats, infused them with massive ethanol 24 hours a day. And on beef tallow diets, they could not get the liver to get bad, very mm-hmm. slightly. On lard with some linoleic, 2%, the liver's got grade 2. And then on sunflower oil, they got grade 4 in necrosis. 
So you're right. The team didn't just say, hey, vegetable oils make liver damage from alcohol a bit worse. They said you can't get liver damage from loads of alcohol if you take away the vegetable oils. And that's one of the reasons some countries have a lot of liver damage with the same alcohol intake as other countries. They've seen this for decades. And one reason is the amount of vegetable oil in the diet. If you're low vegetable oil, you can take a lot of heat from alcohol. <laughs> yeah. one, one funny thing is uh, I was at the Union Square Green Market yesterday in New York City. And for those of you who don't know, it's just like a big farmer's market. And it's like if you want to if you have a stall at the Union Square Green Market, it's like it's very hard to get into. And there was a stall there. This guy was selling sa- cold pressed safflower oil. And I was thinking like New York City has a big drinking culture. And I was like, man, this is a funny recipe for disaster in my head. Linoleic acid, drinking culture. I just think it's hysterical how someone would go to the green market, like go to the green market, buy a bottle of this linoleic acid oil, put it on their salad, go out drinking, and then they think they're being healthy when they're actually just trying to induce a heart attack. Yeah, it's ironic, and their liver will suffer too. Again, if it's a tiny amount of vegetable oil, like a gram, a dribble a day, Maybe maybe you could be still down at one percent, like evolution, like the rat experiment. But it, but because of all the processed food they eat, and the bread is vegetable oil, the processed food is vegetable oil, the salad dressing is vegetable oil, and there's natural foods with linoleic. For most people, I agree. When they add up all the sources, they're going to end up at five, six, seven, eight percent, and then they're right into the rat experiment level that hammered the liver. So can't win. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. So. On the topic of pancreatic cancer, this is uh, th- listen. My mother like has been telling me all her friends are dying of pancreatic cancer. I mean, is is this something we can relate to? Just carbohydrate intake in the diet and the stress of the beta cells and oxidation. It'll be related at some level, and hyperinsulin is connected to a lot of cancers, including pancreatic. Pretty much endometrial breast, I think pancreatic as well, which would make sense, and a few more, possibly the colon or lower colon. Uh, I think cancer is the class, it's a bit like heart disease, it's a synergy. Uh, what I would do to as best as I could avoid cancer, if I just listed out, is certainly refined carbs and sugars minimized, certainly vegetable oils. Uh, but there's a lot of rat studies on mammary cancer and linoleic acid and they are very worrying and they stopped in the 90s i think because everyone was telling everyone to eat vegetable oil so it's not popular to have rat studies saying they cause breast cancer so but i definitely know vegetable oils for cancer and one human trial saw the vegetable oils lower the heart disease death a bit but the all cause stayed the same and a year later they published why because the cancer had gone up on the polyunsaturated side right mm-hmm. so I just say I would not eat those things. I would get healthy sun exposure um, and exercise. I would do all the things we talked about because we can never be sure which are the biggest things for cancer. So I would make the assumption that all the good things we do, keep trying to do all of them to minimize cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, One case, Polynesian women, I have a study, and the summary from the team was, Polynesian women generally have five to eight times lower breast cancer than American women. Mm -hmm. Now, that means they have around 15 or 20% of the rate. Imagine you said tomorrow, I can do something for you to reduce your risk of breast cancer by a factor of seven. You go, oh my God, 
well, my risk is pretty small and you're going to reduce. It's enormous. And if no drug in the world could dream of that. But they said these women, when they move to America, within two generations or so, their breast cancer rates rise up to be pretty much like American women. Mm-hmm. So we know there's something different between these these women and American women. And it's not genetics, because when the Polynesian women go over here, they get just as bad. Now, then you're into saying, is it the food and nutrition? I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, you can also say chemicals and cosmetics and pharmaceuticals. I, I don't know, maybe. But you don't know. But I'd still say nutrition is the biggie. You know, I was uh, listening to a talk on iodine, and female breast tissue requires it's females require more iodine than men do and the breast tissue requires a specific amount of iodine each day i think it was an incredibly high amount that most people get it was like five milligrams of iodine per day is required uh to prevent cysts in female breast tissue so uh, iodine and so to me a lot of nutritional deficiencies in the united states are things that are overlooked right now from iodine to uh especially vitamin D3, they actually, you know, there's a, a really interesting study, and it's not really a study, it's just them saying they made a mistake, that the vitamin D3 RDA was supposed to be 8,990 or something like that. Uh, you know, I saw that paper, yes, from one of the vitamin D professors, he's a good guy, that even their calculation that came up with you only needed 1,000, the maths was wrong, the math was wrong. Again, I'm not so sure of the of the pills versus getting it from UV. I have a vitamin D lamp from Sperty in the US, and I get it through UV because of all the other benefits of Does UV. Does that lamp actually tan you? Hmm? Can it can that lamp tan you? It can tan, but it's actually designed more for vitamin D with less UVA. High, oh, high UVB, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's thirty percent UVB, seventy percent A. I think the tanning parlors are five ninety five. But, but it can with long-term use, but it's not designed to, to really do that. But I got that because of what I learned. There's many photo products made in our skin by the sun, mm-hmm. and by UV particularly, and they're not even sure what they're for. And I'm guessing they're for important things. Mm-hmm. This so, is, yeah, this is the, uh, I'm glad you brought this up again, because this is the main thing that for me, uh, I have, like, I know that, you know, obviously taking a D3 supplement is better than doing nothing, but there are these beneficial things, uh, the photo products, but we don't really know much about these. Yeah. So I would say evolution is not an idiot. And those processes were designed for a certain use and no one's been interested to look at them because there's probably no feeling there's a drug for them. There's no driver Hmm. to look at them and work on them. It takes a lot of work to explore molecules. You need a financial driver to justify doing it. So I, I did. Yeah, I, I wonder if you could figure out since there are animals, there are animals that don't go in the sun, like rats. So would we be able to figure out by looking at rats what their D three pathways were compared to humans and see what what they have that we don't have? Yeah, I possibly. Um, yeah, you'd look at the different makeup because they would have evolved to not need them. Now you do see rats out during the day, but I agree they're mostly out at night. Uh, dogs as well they they release vitamin d i think into their fur and their skin and their hair and then they lick it back off to get it into their body would you believe that but that's actually the mechanism they don't have it made like we do and 
And reptiles then, in the zoo, the reptiles were all getting brittle bone and dying young and mating was bad. And Professor Hollick, who discovered D, was brought in and they got their D status up and there was a miraculous transformation. That was reptiles. So now we have lamps for reptiles to make sure they're getting D. So we acknowledge that sun and D is really important, even for reptiles. But it seems the authorities always like to say, a few hundred's good enough for you. Oh, don't be taking more. You know, take the minimum. It's not the way. They, they always go that way. That's the way they roll. Mm. Uh, you mentioned alcohol with your, with your meal. And I remember reading this thing. There were these, I think it was Georgians. Uh, they, they made this vodka. And they lived well over 100 years old. And it, it goes something to say. I, I was going to say, oh, you know, what's the context of alcohol and diet? And I think it always ties back to the quality of the food you're eating and the quality of life you're living. And then that directly affects your body's ability to deal with oxidative stress. And in the case of a glass of wine, if you're having it with a piece of wild-caught salmon and some broccoli, maybe some cheese, a little ice cream, you, you could still live to 100. But when you're going out four or five nights a week and, and getting blackout drunk and then eating – yeah, at 4 a.m. You're like, I need some pizza. I, I I used to work in a, I used to work as a, I mean, I used to work as a bartender. So I would be driving through Manhattan at 3 or 4 a.m. And that's where I got that story from. I was driving. It was like 4 a.m. And this girl was walking with her shoes in her hand. She's like, Oh my God, I need some pizza. And it's you know that lifestyle that what we and I've I've had so many women with, uh, I've seen them with candida issues. I've seen them with gut issues and stomach issues. And these women are, they're on these very restrictive diets. Then they're going out and getting shit-faced with alcohol, and then they're consuming high-fat foods that they were craving because now their judgment is uh, – Yes. It's really it's really interesting parallel there. Uh, it's a crazy thing, and, and it, it keeps driving itself in remorseless loops because when you drink a couple of wines, your guard is down. You might sneak and eat slices of pizza, and now you're putting together the two worst foods you can put together. Um, alcohol – you know, it weakens your resolve and it makes you do stupid things. People go back on cigarettes due to being drunk and then they're hooked again. So, yeah, and then alcohol with good food, I'd agree, is fine. Now, if you have too much alcohol with your food, it's a bit like having too much sugar because your liver is trying to manage and it must process alcohol first before it touches the food. So the hierarchy is alcohol is the first thing that will get burnt, then sugars, and then back to fat. So when you drink quite a lot of alcohol with a meal, the fat is getting backed up in your system. The gut bacteria is having a little dance and party and eating eating real good. (laughs) That fat is out there kind of behaving a little bit like the milkshake in the the diabetic we talked about earlier, floating around your blood, causing some trouble. So yeah, too much alcohol with the meal, yeah, might keep your liver busy and stuff busy when you should be digesting. But a bit, no problem. Mix it in, yeah. Yeah, one thing I like saying about this is if you if a if a young lady thinks a diet is good and then she but she cheats on the diet and then she feels like okay I need to get back on my diet if you never stick to or have a normal lifestyle you never really get to understand what's truly healthy it's why people get sucked into these things it's like they're on and off the rail instead of staying on the rail to finish their destination uh, did you have yeah yeah oh, go ahead no 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 that was uh well, I interviewed Michaela Peterson in Boulder a couple of weeks ago. It's out on my YouTube channel podcast and a fascinating story. But she had profound issues. Our juvenile arthritis had to get replaced, ankle, hip, depression on a 
truckload of meds. And she eventually kept isolating and removing pieces from her diet. And she got to the end. But that journey was incredible. 99.99% of people who went on that journey of finding out what foods were causing the problem would have failed. Because there were even foods that when she took them, it was only a couple of weeks later she'd get a, a reaction. She had to have a diary to tie the reaction to the food. It really complicated. Mm-hmm. And she did it. Now, she ended up on just beef and water <laughs> in the end because anything else brought on problems. So now she's thriving. But you're right. The vast majority of people will never figure out what it is that's screwing them up. For a lot of people, it'll be small amounts of wheat. It can be certain other things in the plant world. But how do you isolate them? You have to be really ruthlessly regimented. Mm-hmm. Get down to the minimum safest foods, I suppose, meat, fish, and eggs, because we evolved on them. And then slowly and carefully add in plant foods and, and leave a little time after each one and watch for a problem. You're pretty happy there's no issue. Okay, tick the box, take in another. Most mm. people won't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, someone was just curious. So when you're replacing these vegetable oils and your, the energy in your diet – uh, with animal products, you want to look at your lipid markers. So if your lipids go crazy when you eat meat and fat, then maybe try to switch to fish or those other healthier fats um, that well, that people think are healthier. Uh, yeah, and, and, and dabble in different foods uh, within reason. You may find, again, there's more and more things come up that cheese can be something for people trying to lose weight. It can be a challenge. It's very easy to eat a lot of it. It's got proteins in it that come from milk. We're not really designed to drink the milk of another species. So I think cheese is something I'd certainly be quick to move aside if you have challenges. And then meat, you can move. I, one, a cardiologist I know when I was talking about uh, David Bobbitt, my boss, who has Irish heart disease awareness, he has strong feelings on having a challenge with too much meat in his diet. And a great cardio called Rocky Rakesh, he's on Twitter, a real brilliant researcher on lipoproteins everything he said fish should should be his meat it was just a great little phrase fish should be his meat you got problems you got sensitivities you've got prior heart disease your apoe4 you know make fish your meat mostly be mm-hmm. careful with cheese mm-hmm. eat some bland olive oils and plant world avocado foods stay safe mm-hmm did you have any thoughts? I was reading some studies on carnitine reducing atherosclerosis, but it's kind of isolated outside of the context of the meat. Yeah, the, the carnitine I don't think is a huge lot of meaning. There's a thing called carnosine, S-I-N-E, which I haven't looked into much, but it's different than carnitine, and it can be given as a supplement in high dose. And there's arguments that really helps endothelial health, but I haven't looked into it yet. But anyone who wants to Google carnosine, Carnitine from meat, they say it raises TMAOH, but that that seems to be a vegan myth. That the issue with the TMAO thing was that fish is way high, is hundreds of times higher, and that vegetables ferment in your stomach like beets and spinach that produce way more TMAO and nitric oxide products than than meat does. Uh, yeah, the TMAO is is a completely blown out of proportion thing. I don't think it has much meaning. I researched it briefly. It looks like if you have insulin resistance, liver issues, and particularly kidney issues from bad food, you'll end up at higher TMAO levels. Mm -hmm. 
So TMAO being high, connecting to disease or death, is just because the root cause is the same for both. Mm -hmm. Certain things drive up kidney issues and drive up TMAO, and they also drive up atherosclerosis. So the TMAO gets linked. It's rubbish. The other thing I found in a human study was they took women, middle-aged, for six full months, they got their TMAO levels by giving them carnitine. They racked their TMAO levels up by a factor of 10. So they said, we're not messing around here. And to our earlier point, they took risk here. They racked up their TMAO by 10 times. And the first, a few weeks, they were way up. They kept them high for the whole six months. And they said, now let's look at all their markers, not just cholesterol, all their inflammatory markers, endothelial health markers, advanced markers of atherosclerosis and inflammation, all of them, zero. 10 times the TMAO put in your body by meat for six months, nothing happened, nothing to any marker. And they basically concluded, we have now checked out this theory and it appears it's only associational. It's mm. not real. Mm. Boom. It's funny how I can relate everything that we've spoken about back to vegetable oils in a way because soybean oil and vegetable oils have choline and choline is turned into TMAO. It can always be kind of turned back on the vegetable oil. It's, it's almost comical. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think I, w I was curious. Uh, did you want to kind of sum this up with just a quick explanation of how – I mean, we didn't touch on how heart disease happens. You know, the glycocalyx gets impaired, the endothelial wall, the endothelium. Maybe like a quick two or three minute blurb. Uh, right. Well, okay. So really quick. So there are many, many conditions in your body that drive damage to your endothelium, damage to the inner delicate wall of your artery, damage to the glycocalyx hair-like structure that covers all the inside surfaces of your arteries. And those states are many and they, they damage all parts of your arteries and they damage your HDL and they stop it being able to bring cholesterol back out of the artery wall. So every layer of technology that's crucial for arterial health is damaged by insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, high blood glucose, inflammatory conditions, and I would say vegetable oils over time, processed foods, and lack of exercise and lack of sleep, make that a bit worse. So they're important, but they're not the core. And that's essentially the multi-factor process of atherosclerosis. But the crucial thing for people is it's progressive. So some people in their 40s will have almost none. They'll have zero and a calcium score. And other people in their 40s will have huge atherosclerosis with a score of 500. They'll never know unless they get the scan and find out because the blood markers fail you a lot of the time. My highest calcium scoring person is a 29-year-old with a score of 600 with the arteries of an 86-year-old. He was 29. I've got a 73-year-old with a zero score, right? He has practically no disease. So people need to understand the only way you'll really know if you, in middle age, if you have a massive disease problem or a very small one, when you're in the middle risk, don't know really what my bloods are saying. My cholesterol's high. My blood pressure's good. What's going on? You get a $100 CT scan, CAC score. You find out where you are. If you're a high score, you take a lot of action. All of what we talked about. If you're a low score, you don't start smoking and drinking Coca-Cola. 
If you're a low score like me, I want to guard that score. I mean, I got a low score at 48. I'm 50 years old now. I'd like to have that zero score like my friend who's 73. So I'm still motivated to keep the zero. So it's not like you get a zero and you say, hey, I can be an idiot now. So I think having that calcium score and knowing where you are will motivate you and help you to drive towards stopping that score rising. And that's the key. If you have a thousand score and a huge risk in the next few years of a heart attack with that score, but you stop it rising over the next few years, there's papers to show your risk goes right back down to like someone who had a zero. Mm -hmm. It's so important, guys. And the last thing I'd say is to understand all of this, Google Widowmaker CAC, or I'll give you the link to a free viewing of the Widowmaker movie. $2 million movie, couple of years old, all the fascinating drama of this scan, how it was developed and how powerful it is, and then go and make your choice. Mm -hmm. I, uh, Ivor, one thing I forgot to ask was, uh, <laughs> doesn't, I'm sorry, I know, doesn't, this, but you brought it up, doesn't, does, doesn't heart disease only occur on one side of the heart? Uh, it can happen. It, it, it often occurs in the left anterior descending artery, the Widowmaker artery. Yeah. Uh, for various flow and pulsing reasons. But you can also get it in the circumflex or the right coronary artery, the RCA. So you can get it in any of the major arteries. But it's, it's nearly always major vessels that are fed by little vessels. Their walls are fed. It's in the big vessels. Uh, the other thing to know is that you can have a huge atheroma, a big plaque, say, here on your artery. That's going to kill you tomorrow. A big boil about to burst. Awful looking, right? Pushing into the, into the core of your artery and blocking the flow and about to burst. And right beside it across the wall, the wall is in perfect health. So people need to think, wow, you can have a huge plaque and the wall of your artery just across the, across the diameter does nothing. So how can it be cholesterol stuff that causes it? And the reason is so much of the cause is weakness in the glycocalyx and the endothelium. And it's where those layers in your artery are weak, that, that, that insulin and glucose and all of our causes can be a problem, or even cholesterol can be a problem. So that's focal atherosclerosis. It kind of tells you the mechanism when that can happen. Uh, mm -hmm. Ivor, thank you so much. So what's the latest thing you've been working on and uh, where can people find you? Well, yeah, Frank, my latest thing is the podcast series and I got a new website set up with some support staff and I'm getting the podcast out two or three times a week. I have 11 out now. So if they go to thefatemperor.com or Google my name and find thefatemperor.com, the podcast page and blog page there have a lot of new interviews some of which you've seen and they're getting great feedback so that's probably the main thing my main job really working for irish heart disease awareness is to promote awareness of the calcium scan so people can find out before they die but my other job is to just get more and more out there to, to be able to get that message further and the message of the fixes that we talked about because if you get a high score and you have a problem you know, you're going to want to quickly start putting the right fixes in. Mm -hmm. Ivor, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> thank uh, you, And, um, of course, uh, you enjoy the rest of your week, and thank you guys for listening, and you guys enjoy the rest of your week as well. Thanks, man.